Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another edition of Coronapod. I'm Benjamin Thompson, firmly ensconced once more in the South London basement. And joining me this week are Noah Baker and returning to the show, Heidi Ledford, a senior reporter here at Nature. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Ben. Hi, Heidi. Well, both this week we're talking, as we often have recently, about vaccines. And we know that, you know, vaccines of different sorts are being rolled out across the globe. Maybe some of our listeners have had their first shots already. But this roller is, of course, a huge challenge in some part because these vaccines, or most of them at least, require two doses, two shots. Now, researchers are trying to maybe alleviate that problem by looking at a mix and match approach, I guess. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, Heidi, why are the vaccines that are being used now, why do they require two shots? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's really just to give you a stronger immune response. You've got the first shot, which is often called a prime, uh, and that sort of introduces your immune system to the coronavirus protein that's in the vaccine. And so you get an initial response from that. And that's good. But they find that often if you give a second shot, which is called a boost, it does exactly that. It'll boost the immune response. You'll get a stronger, for example, antibody response, and it might last longer. And we've talked about the fact that we might need two shots for various of these vaccines. But what we haven't really discussed much on Coronapod is exactly how and when those shots are administered. So the kind of dosing regimen of those shots varies from vaccine to vaccine. And there is a kind of a bit of a discussion among the scientific community of exactly how that could impact the efficacy, you know, for the Pfizer vaccine, for example, the kind of manufacturer advice is there should be a three week gap between those shots. And yet in the UK right now, there's sometimes up to 12 weeks gap between those shots because of the way that the vaccines are being rolled out. And there's a lot of kind of confusion and questions about whether or not this is going to make the vaccine ineffective or if it could change things. Heidi, do you have any way of clearing this up? Not really, no. I mean, (laughs) I sort of laughed a little bit when you talked about the discussion because I thought, yeah, it's a very big discussion in the UK. You know, the UK did make this decision to allow for a delayed second dose. And I absolutely sympathize because it's in a very tough situation, right? At that time, 
you know, and, and still hospitals are under enormous pressure. At that time, we didn't know when that pressure was ever going to be alleviated. We really needed to get vaccines out quickly. I absolutely understand the pressures they were under to try to do something to speed up, you know, the number of people who at least get it one shot in some protection. But we really didn't know what the effect of extending that interval between the two shots was going to be. There was a good guess that does seem to be sort of panning out for the vaccine that's made by Oxford and AstraZeneca, that that one would be okay to go out to 12 weeks. And, and there were various reasons for thinking that. There was a little bit of evidence um, and also some good sort of theory behind it. But particularly when it came to the RNA vaccines, we really didn't know what the effect of extending that interval between the two shots was going to be. We had inferences we could make based on past experience with other vaccines and knowledge of immunology. But there was, I would say, quite a bit of difference in the scientific community about whether or not that was enough to justify going forward. And there were people saying, you know, we need to do this. It's a good bet, you know, that this is going to work out. These are desperate times. And then there were other people who were saying, these are desperate times. Therefore, we need to do something that we know will work and not take a gamble. But I think by and large, these intervals that were tested, particularly for the RNA vaccines, for example, it's, it's a little bit trial and error to it. There is reason to think that if you wait longer, you may actually get a better response. And it may have to do with trying to get the trials out done quickly and so on, that maybe they wanted to have that interval short for the clinical trials. Um, so you could imagine a rationale for extending things. It was just, it's a matter of, do you want to see the data backing that up before you make a big decision? I was glad I was you know, not in a position to ever have to make that kind of choice. And I think people are, that are receiving the vaccine are also very confused about what this means. I mean, I had people on the radio being interviewed saying, when I gave informed consent for my first vaccine, it was under the assumption that I would have my second vaccine in the appropriate amount of time. And maybe I wouldn't have consented to the first vaccine if you then didn't live up to the challenge of the second one. I mean, it's a bit of a minefield about how to manage this. Yeah, that's messy, isn't it? And I have heard, you know, from people saying they felt really good about getting their first shot. And then they found out the second was going to be delayed. And particularly those who are a bit more familiar with the data were, they were saying, what, what's this, you know, and am I still going to be as protected as I thought in all this? And they don't want to gamble with their own health necessarily. Hopefully it does seem like it's likely to be fine, but it was quite a controversy. It's sort of interesting because as some data has come out, about the duration of immunity after the first shot. We've gotten a little bit more data and, and I'll often see statements saying that, you know, the UK decision was vindicated, but I don't know if that's quite the right word. I don't know if it can ever really be vindicated. You know, they may be proven to have chosen the right gamble, but I don't know that they necessarily are vindicated in taking that chance. You know? Yeah, but anyway, it was quite a tense discussion and I do realize it's very difficult circumstances. So from an immunology perspective, why... Would scientists think that lengthening that gap between vaccines may or may not impact someone's overall immunity? Well, I think, you know, if you infer from what we already know about immunology, you're not so worried about losing efficacy. I think the theory is that you potentially could gain some efficacy by waiting longer. And part of the reason for that is that you want that booster shot, the second shot that you get, is most powerful if it's really activating your memory cells in your immune system. So your memory B cells, your memory T cells, and they will then launch this immune response. If you still have the initial reaction to the first dose really raging and like high levels of antibodies in your body and so on, you may not get as much activation of those memory cells. And so it may not actually be as effective. So there is, in theory, a good reason for thinking, oh, maybe it would be better to even wait a little bit longer. And then again, there's there's a wrinkle depending on which of the vaccines you're talking about, because also for vaccines like the Oxford AstraZeneca one, which rely on a harmless virus called an adenovirus in this case, 
to carry DNA for a coronavirus gene into cells. That vaccine, if you give it twice, which is what the current dosing is for Oxford-AstraZeneca, you do have the possibility that you're going to have immune responses, not only against the coronavirus protein, but also against the adenovirus vector that you use to shuttle that DNA into cells. You really want that to die down before you give the second shot, or else you could end up reducing your chance of getting a good response to the spike protein from coronavirus. So again, you know, in theory, it makes absolute sense to wait a bit longer. And I think the debate really is just that we don't have the hard evidence to show that it's still going to be as effective. So that's what's worrying a lot of people. Well, alongside that debate, part of the reason that these circumstances exist was that, you know, there was no guarantee there'd be enough to go around. So we try and extend out the gap between them to make sure that everyone could have their first shot. But to try and alleviate any potential sort of bottlenecks with just not having enough, researchers are maybe trying to get creative with what they do have. Yeah, so we're seeing a few clinical trials getting started to look at the effects of starting with, you know, one vaccine for a prime dose, for example, and then switching to another one for the boost, and then to see the effects of that. And that could have two benefits if we get some data showing that it works out. One would be to ease up on the logistics, right? Because we've all seen now like how incredibly difficult this is to try to roll these things out to realize, okay, I have to save a dose for that second dose to go, to arrive. Even if it's 12 weeks later, we need to know that it's going to be there of that same kind for that person. But the other thing too is that mixed and matched vaccines is an approach that has been used before and has been shown in some cases to boost the immune effect of the vaccine itself. So it could be a benefit that way sounds good in theory but lots of things sound good in theory and you have to show them in practice the trials that are going on where are they and presumably there are going to have to be quite a lot of them right because we could have one trial which could be a proof of principle about mixing vaccines but you still don't want to roll anything out unless you've specifically trialed the two vaccines you're talking about in the order you're talking about with the interval you're talking about like there's a lot of trials you might need to do to be able to just sort of say okay cool we can just like mix and match all of these vaccines all over the place now yeah. I mean, I would say it's not really being tested on that scale yet. So the trial that we wrote about that recently got started, that one is a UK effort and it's got sponsorship from the UK government in part because they want to be able to ease the logistics and get things out more quickly. And it's being run through Oxford. The other trial that I know of is also with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, but it's being run by AstraZeneca. And that's combining that vaccine with one of the components of the Sputnik V vaccine that was developed in Russia. And the Sputnik V vaccine is itself kind of a mix and matched vaccine because it's got two different adenoviral vectors that are being used in each dose. So it's got the same coronavirus protein as a target, but it's importing that target into human cells using different viruses. And so it, in a way, it's also kind of a test of a mix and match. I'm really interested in, from an immunological perspective, what is the theory as to why having a mix and match vaccine approach could actually be a benefit because I think this is not an uncommonly held belief among immunologists. This isn't like a wacky theory, right? Right. I mean, we have approved vaccines. I mean, there's one that was recently approved for Ebola, for example, which is this kind of system where you have two different vaccines given, one for the prime and one for the boost. The potential advantages sort of depend somewhat on which vaccines you're talking about mixing. For example, the trial that Oxford is going to run. That trial is going to look at the vaccine that Oxford researchers developed along with AstraZeneca in combination with a vaccine developed by Pfizer. And the two vaccines work differently. They have the same target. They both are designed to raise immune responses against a coronavirus protein called spike, right? But they do them in slightly different ways and they get slightly different immune profiles as a result. So the RNA vaccine, for example, from Pfizer 
gets you amazing antibody levels, really, really good. It also stimulates T cells, which are another important part of the immune response to viruses. You know, it does it well. It does it well. But the data for the RNA vaccines, it's a little bit more mixed on the T cell side. And then conversely, you've got the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. That one does really, really well with T cells, maybe slightly less good with antibodies. So the idea is if you mix the two together, maybe you get the best of both worlds and you get an even better response. So that's a possibility. I think it's easy to forget that the immune system isn't just one thing. It's not like you have a vaccine which makes your immune system work. Vaccines work in a whole bunch of different ways and they do different things in your immune system. So we're still having to really learn about how this all works. Yeah. And what works for one vaccine may not work for another vaccine. So it may be that combinations worked well in Ebola. Maybe, you know, we don't know for sure how they'll work with, with these coronavirus vaccines which is why it's important to test it. But it's a good theory to test. And one thing I kind of like about this whole effort, I guess, to mix and match it, to test these combinations is that, you know, we got really lucky with this first generation of vaccines because they work so well. I mean, I really didn't expect them to work this well. But it's exciting to see how we're going to improve them going forward. And I think especially with the variants coming out, that are worrying all of us now every single day. Like we wanna get as strong of an immune response as we can. We know that now. So it's good that there are still ways to tinker and play and get maybe something slightly better. So in terms of the Oxford trial that you wrote about in Nature then, is that what's being looked at, the immune response, and not a percentage of people getting sick or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, compared to these massive phase three trials that we saw for these key vaccines that are out there now, which had tens of thousands of people, this is a much smaller trial and shorter. So they're testing a couple of different intervals between the the prime and the boost, as we were just talking about. But for the shorter interval, I think was four weeks. And they're hoping to get results from that, I think, by May to June, somewhere in there. And then, you know, if that's useful, that could then potentially inform the rollout as we go into the summer. So it's something the UK is very interested in hearing the results of. But it's true. They won't be looking at infections and protection against infection directly. They'll be looking at the immune response that's been stimulated and gathering data on safety and any kind of side effects and things like that that may come up. Yeah, one question that I think I had is when you have a vaccine, it gives you a degree of protection against the disease or the virus in this case that that vaccine is protecting against. Is there a concern that if you were to give a different vaccine as your second booster, that the first vaccine could interfere with the second vaccine? Like, for example, you've already got some kind of immunity and then you get something else that looks like the spike protein, but in a different way. Can vaccines interfere with each other in that way? Or is that kind of what the trials have to work out? I guess a case where I have heard, you know, some concern that there may be a bit of a dampened immune response when you mix and match is not so much mixing and matching different vaccines against spike, which is what most of these vaccines are against currently. It's more about when you update the vaccines to account for the variants. So then you're going to be immunizing with a different version of spike. And at that point, it's possible that the fact that you already had this initial immune response against the original version of spike may mean that you won't mount such a good immune response against the new version. It's a phenomenon in immunology called original antigenic sin. It's kind of a a fun name. But I've heard that possibility. But that's a bit different from mixing and matching these first generation vaccines. But, you know, it is it's something to test. I think as well, we have to, you know, kind of as you alluded to earlier on, keep in mind that we were so spoilt briefly by these initial responses with 90% efficacy. And actually, if we think about the flu vaccine, which people use every year, people would dream of a flu vaccine being 90% effective. I mean, it is unusual for a vaccine to have those kind of numbers. And it could be less effective. But that doesn't mean that even though it's less than 90, it's not pretty on board with most vaccines, you know. It's true. I mean, we really have to recalibrate. I mean, most of these, when we talk about a decrease from 
I don't know, maybe from 95% to 70%, that's still well above the efficacy that we had as our threshold for being a useful vaccine. So I think, you know, if anything, we're just doubly lucky that they worked so well to begin with, because now we've had these variants come out, which we knew were probably going to show up eventually. But I think, you know, some people would say have shown up a bit earlier than we had hoped. So we're just so lucky that we had such robust vaccines that, that we can take a bit of a hit in the efficacy and still have a significant benefit from them. Well, finally, Heidi, vaccine delivery plans, as we know, have been thrashed out by governments and health departments across the world. If it does pan out that this mix and match approach proves to be effective, can you see this quickly changing how things are done or maybe not so much? I might be naive, but I could see that happening quickly because it's almost like releasing a pressure valve or something, you know. It's not that it would require more sophisticated logistics to make it happen. It would require potentially slightly less sophisticated logistics to make it happen. And so I could see it actually taking place. But, you know, there are always bumps and wrinkles to these things that I I can't anticipate. It's just amazing. Every time I talk to a healthcare provider, especially in the United States, where, you know, everything is much less centralized and coordinated than it is here in the UK, it just blows my mind the, the logistics they're dealing with. Well, clearly lots going on in this sphere and definitely something we'll talk about when the results come out. And Heidi, I hope you'll join us to talk about them when they do. But let's leave it there for this week. Heidi and Noah, thank you so much. Thank you. I love the excuse to talk to you guys. (laughs) Now that we don't see each other in the office, it's so nice. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks, Ben. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.